We are in Matthew 6. We're just going to look at verses 7 to 10, really 9 and 10, but I'm going to read starting in verse 7. Hear then the word of God. Jesus says that when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, even as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into, into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The Word of God. Pray with me. Father in heaven, as we come to your Word this morning, teach us to pray. Teach us to find what we need in you. Teach us to walk with you, to be connected to you. Teach us to know you and to love you. Teach us to pray well, that our prayers may be answered, that your gospel may be proclaimed, that your kingdom would be advanced, that our lives would be changed, that Christ would be honored and glorified. Teach us to pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Just looking at the first couple of lines of the Lord's Prayer this morning, verses 9 and 10, thinking about these priorities in our praying. Prayer is one of those things that is so central to the Christian life, so talked about that it almost, we almost stop hearing it. You know, when we say, well, part of the answer is, well, I'll pray for you, or, well, you should really pray about that. It's kind of cliche almost. It goes over our head and slides past us. It, it doesn't always actually shape our Christian lives. It doesn't always shape who and where we are in relationship with God. But prayer is the ultimate test of a man's true spiritual condition. There's nothing that tells the truth about us as Christian people so much as our prayer life. Because it is the secret life. It is the hidden life. It is the internal life. It is who we are when no one is looking. It is, it is who we are in relationship with God. It is, the, it is the, the core element of our relationship with Him as we stay constantly connected to Him, as we talk to Him and that we listen to Him, that we are engaged with Him. And so it is in so many ways, as, as this tells us, the ultimate test of where our hearts really are. Where do our hearts really go? Prayer. So core, so central. It is the heart of spiritual authenticity. And so the call to prayer is an invitation to a relationship with God. It's an invitation to a deep and real relationship to know Him and to walk with Him. And so many times our prayer life, it's on that list of things we do need to do and we check it off and it becomes part of sort of the, the structure of things, the ritual of things. Did you pray today? Did you do this? I need to pray and read my Bible. Check, check. But like so many other things, it's an invitation to a relationship and we often miss the heart of it, the power of it, the truth of it, by simply doing it. 
It is a life of constant connection, of unceasing conversation, of communion, of an interchange of of love and intimacy with God. In the parallel passage to this one on the Lord's Prayer in the Gospel of Luke, uh, we're introduced here in the Lord's Prayer. We get it as part of this overall Sermon on the Mount, a larger sermon that, that Jesus is teaching, and he hits on prayer. And his teaching on prayer is, is something I think that he has done multiple times in most multiple contexts, and he teaches sometimes the same kind of things. And he teaches it in Luke chapter 6, and the context there is that the disciples ask him, to teach them, that they see him. Jesus had been pulled aside and praying, and apparently in that context, it was within earshot of them. Because it says that when he finished, they asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. They saw him getting up before sunrise and praying. They saw him spending extended time in prayer. They saw him making a consistent effort in his life to be with the Father in prayer. They heard him. They stood by as he prayed. And they, they heard him interacting with the Father. They, they heard his pleas. They heard his heart. And as they heard him pray, they saw something in him. They heard something in him that they longed to experience in their own life with God. Something in the way he prayed. Something in the content. Something in the relationship that was palpable in his times with the Father. That they asked him, Lord Jesus, teach us to pray like that. Help us to know God, to interact with the Father like that. Jesus, what is it that draws you into prayer so early and so often? What is it that is in your prayers that is so attractive and desirable as we learn to pray? Teach us to pray like you. And he does. Interestingly, he does. So many times Jesus answers questions with questions and these requests. You never know what you're going to get from Jesus depending on how he wants to shape it. Here the simple request is, teach us to pray. And he does. He says, pray, literally as he says it here, as this opens up, he says, pray then like this. Verse 9, pray like this. This is how you should do it. Let me lay it down for you. Let me give you the shape of some authentic prayer. In this first segment, we see much about relationship, worship, and surrender. Let's take a moment and just dig in to some of it. Because when he opens his prayer and he says, pray like this, the first few words are the entrance to prayer, the opening of prayer, this address in prayer is, is the very heart of Christianity. And sometimes, again, things become so familiar that they almost can, can breed, you know, the kind of familiarity that, that helps us miss what Jesus is saying, what what the heart of prayer really is. He says, pray like this, say, our Father who is in heaven. And the first thing that he reveals to us is that prayer is relationship. Prayer is relationship. It's an interchange between a father and his children. It's an interchange between children and their father. 
Right? It's not a thing, again, on our to-do list. It's not just a formality that we go through. It's not something, you know, that if we're a good Christian, we'll do it. He says, when you pray, make sure that you're talking to your Father. Relationally. Speak to Him this way. Go to Him like this. John Newton says, the spirit of prayer is the fruit and token of the spirit of adoption. Think about that for just a minute. The the spirit of prayer is the fruit and the token of the spirit of adoption, of who we are as the sons and the daughters of God. It's very possibly what the disciples tasted in Jesus' praying. Because not a lot of prayer in those days and in that time addressed God as Father. None of the prayers in the temple were talking to God as Father. The, the disciples and the Jews at this time were not learning to relate to God in this way. And when they met up with Jesus and they would sit and listen to Him pray, it's like so many times when Jesus is teaching, you'd have people say, this man speaks like no one else. This man speaks with an authority that the teachers of the law and the other guys, they don't speak with. There was something about what Jesus knew about God's word and his ways and about his law and his teaching that that when he spoke, there was an authority, there was a power, there was an attractiveness, there was something there, something real, something that changed everything. And they, they, they tasted in his praying, and I think a good part of it is this, that Jesus, on his knees, goes to his Father. He talks to him. He relates to him. He knows him. He loves him. It is no empty formality. It is no something done off like a list. Jesus, with one exception, if you read all four of the Gospels and all the places where he addresses God or where he prays, without ex- with one exception, Jesus addresses God as Father. He always does. In Romans 8, 15, and 16, we're told that you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters. It's inclusive. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And so we have this spirit. It's the spirit that is given. That's why I say it reveals in so many ways the true heart of our spirituality. We have been given a spirit of adoption. We have been been made sons and daughters. And by this spirit that has caused us to be born again and who fills us and, and strengthens us and lives with us and changes us, this spirit is a spirit of adoption and it cries within us even as it does in the Son through Jesus, through us, Abba. A father. It knows God as Father. So when Jesus teaches us to call God our Father, He touches really on the beating heart of Christianity. It is, the, in many ways, it is what Christianity is literally all about. Next to the glory of God, that He works that glory in creating a family and a people for Himself who know Him and love Him, His Father. We as a Reformed tradition, we love the doctrine of justification by grace through faith. It is the great doctrine of the Reformation that comes out and captures the heart and minds of the church and the world. Martin Luther said, justification is the article by which the church stands or falls. 
And that is true. It is the article by which the church stands or falls. And as they rediscover and, and, and ground the, the, the reformation of the church on this doctrine, we have come to love and to hold it and to make sure that it is preserved and protected. But do you know that that doctrine, that that truth, that reality of justification is simply a means to an end? The end is not justification. The end is adoption. The end is your sonship. That you would be a son and a daughter. Justification is how we get there. It is that work that must be done in our alienation and lostness. It is that work that must be done so that you can walk with Him as His child. Westminster Confession of Faith, I, it's on top of my mind. We're doing officer training and just two day, a couple of days ago on Wednesday we were going through the Westminster Confession and that part of our training of our officers. There's a chapter in the Confession on Adoption. It's beautiful that it's there, and it sits right where it should. You know, and not everything is in the confession, but it is good that this is at the heart of it. It's just one paragraph, but it says all those that are justified, right? So justification isn't the end. We're not done. There it is, that doctrine of justified by grace through faith in Christ alone, by which I'm made right with God. But I could be made right and left outside the gate. I could be forgiven and still be a servant in the house. But we're not. All those that are justified, God vouchsafes, good old, old uh, King James word, vouchsafes in and for his only son, Jesus Christ, to make us partakers of the grace of adoption. He justifies us to adopts us, to adopt us, by which they are taken into the number, they enjoy the liberties and the privileges of the children of God. They have his name put on them. They receive the spirit of adoption. They have access to the throne of grace with boldness. They are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. They are pitied and protected and provided for. They are chastened by him as by a father. And yet, though discipline never cast off, but they are sealed for the day of redemption. They inherit the promises as heirs of an everlasting salvation. Through faith in the perfect Son of God, we're adopted. And it shapes everything. It is the very beating heart of Christianity. And at the very heart, then, it shapes our relationship with God. And it shapes our praying. Do not underestimate the glory and the power of the fact that Jesus invites you, that the Father invites you to address him this way. When you pray, when you come into the presence of Almighty God, say, Father. But he moves immediately, and I love the tensions, and we'll see these tensions within it. If, if the context of all of our praying is this intimate privilege that we have of relationship, relationship with the God of the universe, it is the most unique relationship that there is because there, there exists this tension. It's not like a relationship among equals. The one that we are allowed to call Father, he says, say this, our Father in heaven. Right? He immediately puts it in this tension. Because he's not any Father, and he's not anywhere. But he is a Father, our Father. He is our Father, but he is in heaven. And it reminds us that he is holy. Holy. 
It reminds us that He is Lord and King. Psalm 11.4 says this, The Lord is in His holy temple, and the Lord's throne is in heaven. And His eyes see. So when Jesus says, Pray to your Father who is in heaven, you know, there is this whole backdrop of knowing that this is where God's throne is. It's the place from which he rules his universe, all that he has made. He sits enthroned upon the circle of the earth. And he reigns there as sovereign and king, and his eyes see all. It is him to whom you know, we will give an account, the one with whom we have to do, the one before whom we live and move and have our being. Our Father is in heaven. It reminds us of his divinity, of his sovereignty of his power, of the profound tension between what the theologians will call his imminence and his transcendence. And it is something that is hard for us to wrap our minds around in his imminence that he comes near, that he condescends to come near to us, to pour out his spirit into our lives, to come to us in the person of the Son, to allow us through the Son to call him Father. He is a God who is near an ever-present help in our times of trouble, and yet He is a God who is in heaven, sits upon the throne, reigning. There's nowhere in the Scripture that I have found that this tension is captured more clearly and profoundly and helpfully than Isaiah 57, 15. Thus says the one, who is high and lifted up. The one who inhabits eternity, the uncreated, almighty God, the one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I am other. I am not like you, and I don't don't live in earth. I live, I dwell in a high and holy place. I reign. And then he says, feel the tension. I also Dwell with him who is contrite and lowly of spirit to revive the heart of the contrite and the spirit of the lowly. I live in this high and holy place. My name is holy. And I live here. And yet I also, I also have come near. Come near. You can call me Father. The one who is repentant, the contrite and the lowly, the one who is repentant, who has bowed the knee to me may come. And own me as their father. He turns then from this address, our father who is in heaven, to the first petition, which is really this call for the hallowing of God's name. Hallowing is not a word that you and I use very much anymore, right? This hallowed ground, or however you might choose to use it, All Hallows Eve, we say it in Halloween. We don't use that word, and it simply means the word underneath there is the same word translated everywhere else in Scripture as either sanctified or holy. Holy. Let your name be holy. Let your name be sanctified. Let your name be honored. Let it be treated as holy. Let us honor it appropriately is the cry, is the prayer. It's a prayer that the world would come to know God is God, to honor His name as holy. His name is when we say to honor His name as holy, it's to honor Him as holy. Right? His name is just taken there for Him. You know, it's great to honor His name, but if you don't honor Him, you've done no great good. 
right? It, it is to honor him. And so it is a prayer that the world would come to know God as God, to glorify his name and to honor his name. To bow the knee to Yahweh and acknowledge him as Lord of all. This prayer is really the same thing that is told to us in 1 Peter 3.15. Peter writes and he tells us that in your hearts you should honor Christ the Lord as holy. Hallowed be, holy be Christ in your hearts. That there he would be treated as holy, that he would be known to be holy, that he would be set apart as the Lord and King there in your heart. Set apart Christ, glorify, honor Christ as Lord. And it's the same prayer. This is, it's this desire that starts in our own hearts and, and yet it's a prayer that it would happen in, in all the earth. This is a prayer that must start here and go there. And every one of these petitions starts here Right? You know, we say, Lord, revive your church. Begin with me. Lord, hallow your name. Start in my heart. Start right here. A prayer that starts like this lifts us out of ourselves. Gives us perspective because it's worship. Our Father, as we come to Him so personally, so relationally, this Father who is in heaven, let your name be holy and treated as it's such in my heart. I am out of myself. I am with Him. I am looking to Him. I am honoring Him. I am desiring His glory. I am, I am moving away. And that's how the Lord's Prayer teaches us to do this. God graciously has condescended that we find Him accessible to repentant and humble hearts. But He is not a man. He is the Holy Lord of Heaven. His throne reigns over the circle of the earth. And His name is holy. It should be honored. But then He moves to what I believe is really first personal surrender. And then a call that the world would come to surrender itself to its God and King. He says, Your kingdom come. And your will be done. As opposed to who else's kingdom. As opposed to who else's will. If his, if his kingdom come, comes and his will is done, then whose kingdom and will takes a back seat and disappears in many ways, bows before this will. See, when Christ is set apart as Lord in our hearts and when we are honoring him, in this way, in the Lord of heaven, we will surrender ourselves and to his lordship and to do his will, to serve him and not ourselves. And that's what this prayer is for. It is to bring us to this place, to long for, to pray for his kingdom to come. And we know that his kingdom has come, and in so many ways, it's, it's not the exact same prayer, but almost, because we know that wherever his kingdom has come is the place where his will is being done. Right? It has come in truth and in power. It has come and it is recognized only where His will is being done. And you will know where the kingdom has come in its power and being revealed because there His will is being done. Isn't that what it means to be king? Jesus at one point says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? 
It doesn't make any sense. Where his lordship is, there is doing what he says. His will is done. And we can't say his kingdom has come where his will is not being done, whether it's in our own hearts or in the world that we seek to win to his name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. It comes everywhere that someone bows the knee and surrenders their life to Christ, their will. That his kingdom would come in the sphere of our heart and life. And his will would be done in our hearts as it is in heaven. Only then has the kingdom come here in this little sphere of the world. Now longing for his kingdom is as big as the global reach of the church. What we prayed for just now in in our pastoral prayer for those who are taking the name of Christ to the four corners of the earth. And the prayer that his kingdom would come is a prayer that they would be successful. That his will would be done is a prayer that men and women across the globe would bow their knees to the Lord Jesus. But it's also as close as our own hearts consecrating ourselves to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And to see his will done in our lives as we bow the knee. We may think we don't have a kingdom, but we do. Even as we pray this, I kingdom come, we don't think there's any real conflict in that prayer. But when you pray that prayer, you should feel the conflict. Because you are praying your kingdom out. And you're praying his kingdom in. You don't think you have a kingdom, but I say this. Everywhere your will is done, you reign in your kingdom. Which is why Jesus, even in his prayers, as he looks at his own life and and decisions, and, and at the very end there, when it really matters, Jesus prays, thy will be done, not my will. That's what this prayer is saying every day. This is a prayer we should pray every day. And it's a prayer. It was a prayer for the ousting of our kingdom and our will and the coming of his the coming of His kingdom and His will. We don't really pray this prayer sincerely unless we truly long for the coming of His kingdom in the sphere of my own life and in the depths of my own heart that I, the Lord Jesus, would truly be bowing my knee to You today, walking with You, serving You, honoring You, the glory of Your name, the advancement of Your kingdom and not mine, Do you want him to be Lord here? You know, as we pray this prayer sincerely, we must ask, is Christ king of my inner world? Do I want his kingdom to come here? Do I want his will to be done here as it is in heaven? Do I? Jesus is teaching us to want it, teaching us to pray for it every day. I think at the very heart of Christianity, it's this. It's knowing God is Father in every day. Abandoning our kingdom and our will to praying His in every day. That is, I think, what it means to walk with God. Your kingdom come. Oh, the Spirit-empowered ability to deny ourselves and follow Jesus. It's a wonderful and a beautiful thing to desire it. You know, because we desire many things. First, 
rather than the kingdom. So often our work and our, our sphere and pursuing money and those things, our, our family, our time, our money, our leisure, our marriage, all of these things, praying, not my will be done, but your will be done. Not my kingdom be established, but in all of these spheres, let your kingdom reign. So let me just give you a few applications as we think through. There are a number right here, I think, already that should shape the way you bow the knee and just pray these couple of sentences. If you don't pray them different after today, or maybe you already had it, but it should very consciously and deliberately lead us into what we, to know our own hearts and what we want. But we have to grasp a few things as we close, and one of them is the relational context for praying. It is crucial to pray sincerely to your Father. When I pray and I say, Oh Lord, I have certain things going on in my head. But when I say Father, it feels different, my friends. It does. I hear people pray. I mean, we use all different kinds of addresses when we come to God. We say, oh, Lord, oh, oh gracious God. I heard one person who prayed all the time, oh, Master. When I went to India a couple decades ago, I went with a, a girl who always prayed when we prayed together. She always said, Master. And I thought that was very cool. And I started to pray, Master, a bunch in my prayers and to use that because I thought it sounded good. Other people impressed me. Surely it would impress you when I do it, right? So I would begin, I, would, I used it for, for a while, and it, it kind of was there. But then a few years later, I heard that, that that girl is no longer walking, not just no longer walking with the Lord, but had renounced her faith. And I can't help it. The main thing I remembered about her was that she always said, Master. And I always wondered after that, too, whether that, was, that revealed a problem. Whether you ever actually know the Father. If he is always master to you. Jesus didn't say, pray like this. Master. He said, pray father. Now, I'm not saying, don't hear me saying, it's not wrong to pray and address God in other ways. I'm not saying that. But I will say this. Jesus almost exclusively called him father. And he said, pray like this. And when we do, it does shape our praying. And I think it's important, at very least, I would just say this, frequently, and especially when you're alone with him, talk to him as father. Sometimes I have to make myself say father and mean everything I, that should be meant when you say father. And when I do, it shapes me. It changes me. He is my father. Father. He hears me like I'm his son. That, it changes things. So pray. Pray in this way. This relational core of our religion. And when he teaches us this, he teaches us about our weakness and about God's power. When we say our Father, we come to him as his children. It puts things in perspective. It puts things in order. It is only when we know that we are powerless like children that we will come to him like a child comes to their parent for the things that they need to depend on their parents for so much. If we don't know ourselves to be children this way, consciously every day, it is only when we know and feel our weakness that we will seek out his strength daily. And we know that we can do nothing apart from him. 
And when we know that we are nothing without him, that we will learn to pray. It is that, I think, which was in Jesus' praying that made it so attractive. Prayer, like everything else Jesus teaches us, begins with God. So much in our religion, so much what is wrong with our religion in America and in this time and in this age is that so often our religion begins with us. God is there for me rather than I am there to worship and serve God. And we get it so confused. It, it, is, it is so subtle in so many ways, but it's so much of our religion, my friends, all begins with us. My needs, what I think, what I want, my judgments, my you name it. When Jesus teaches us, as we go and relate to God day by day, moment by moment, your religion and your relationship begin with him. Pray like this, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. It orients us in the universe. It lifts our eyes away from ourselves, whatever else we come for him for. And don't get me wrong, the last half of the prayer, the second table, so to speak, is, is addressing our needs to our Father. He does care. In fact, Jesus opens this. He says, your Father knows what you need before you ask. So don't hear me. I'm saying that we don't come with our needs, but if all we do is come with our needs, then our religion, I just said it, is, is, begins with us and not with Him. And religion always begins with Him. He is accessible as our Father. But he is on heaven's throne, powerful and purposeful. God is doing something. He's advancing a kingdom and, and asserting his will in the world. And we, we want to be a part of it. We wanna, first, we want to be, be captured and surrendered to it. But then we want to be part of it. And that's where we have to begin every day. Or our list, our list that follows will be confused. Because we want to pray according to his will. That our prayers will be heard and answered. And they often will be, I think, askew if we get those things reversed. The way of our praying gives direction to our hearts. Because our hearts are always directed towards something. You may not, you, again, we, we don't always think it is or consciously know. That your heart is every day directed toward things. And what this prayer does was gives us proper direction. Because it will, it will always get directed. The question is, is it directed in the right places? And so praying this prayer daily, as we pray for our daily bread, tells us that this, this is a daily prayer. And so every day we need this orientation. Right? That our inner world is being driven and directed by something, again, by our work, and perhaps money, and our retirement, or our leisure, and our all the things that we want to do, or even our, our families. It can be spouse and children, or our family could end up in the, in the center. It can even be, my friends, it can even be churchy stuff. We're very worried about the externals of church, especially with the new building and all that we have. We can very easily, you know, be directed and be driven by the wrong things, very churchy, external things. Our heart has to be directed in the right ways, day by day to long for the coming of his kingdom, to long for the doing of his will. So it helps shape our priorities, to learn to want what God wants, to pray with him. It teaches our hearts to love the right things, to long for the right things. 
And so to make better decisions in pursuing those things in our lives, at home, at work, and at church, which are all good things, but they need to be in perspective. With the knee bowed and the longing for His kingdom coming under this Lord who is enthroned in heaven. And then all those things take their proper place and shape and are pursued in a healthy way healthy way. Brothers and sisters, we have a hard time keeping our hearts and priorities straight, at least if you're even a slight bit like me. Keeping my heart and my priorities straight day by day is one of the biggest struggles you and I have, which is exactly why Jesus said, you guys pray like this. Start here. Begin with God. Get, get your perspective on the universe straight before you go after all that other stuff. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added unto you. He teaches us to daily consecrate ourselves to the glory of his name, the advancing of his kingdom, and the doing of his will. And if those things capture the imagination of your days, they might go a little differently. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed glory to your name. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done in my heart as it is in heaven. Come near, Father, as we think about what it means to pray, as we think about what Jesus is trying to tell us so simply, so profoundly, so easy and so difficult, so full of life and power and yet so trite and familiar. God, have mercy. Teach us to pray.